This episode is sponsored by Lube Marine, your global partner for pioneering lubrication solutions. This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Priante Martin, and today we're going to hear my conversation on the stage with a panel of experts on whether shipping is ready for the ups and downs of the European Union's carbon market now that the industry will have to pay for the right to pollute. Here's our panel discussion during the Tradewinds Ship Owners Forum during Nor Shipping in Lillestrøm, Norway. So what we're gonna be talking about today um, is, um, is the emissions trading system that uh, now will include, uh, uh, starting in 2024, will include uh, shipping in it. Um, you know, that's been done, but certainty uh, begets uncertainties, new uncertainties, that is. Uh, and, or at least that's what we like to think because uncertainties sell newspapers. Um, but uh, you know, shipping as shipping enters the the EU ETS, um, that means in a very simplistic way that there will be a tax on carbon. But because it's a cap and trade system, because it's a carbon market, um, it's not exactly straightforward. Um, and so I, I prepared. Here we are. I prepared this quick this quick slide um, just to kind of explain it a little bit. Uh, I know most folks in the room are very aware of this development, uh, but it starts in, in, uh, in, in January 2024. Um, it starts at 40% of, uh, uh, of emissions for European voyages, and then, and then that phases, phases into 100% by 2026. But if it's a voyage that goes outside of the, uh, the European Union, um, it's going to be 50% of that. Um, the, al- the allowances have to cover CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, laughing gas, um, and, uh, and it's, at first it's going to be ships for 5,000 uh, uh, gross tons and above. Um, there's a little typo on that one. We don't do that in trade winds, but I accidentally got one in here. Um, and then, um, uh, and, then and, I, and this is an important one for the discussions I've been hearing uh, at North Shipping this week is uh, the EU is going to be looking in 2028 to see, you know, what the IMO has done, and um, you know what uh, how they're going to react to any IMO market-based measure. So, and then just one more slide. I just wanted to to because we're talking about a carbon market, just to look at this the 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 price dynamics that are happening here. Um, so, I mean, basically, what we see in this slide is we see volatility. Um, but we also see generally kind of an upward curve, and I think that's uh, an important thing to talk about because the, the, the EU isn't creating new allowances for shipping. It's adding shipping to, exi- to an existing system where the you know, carbon allowance is actually going to decrease um, over, over time. So, um, so let's, uh, let's start having our discussion. So uh, I-, I wanted to start... Um, by um, by going first to uh, to Frederick uh, Bofillier, um, there he is, <laughs> and um, because Frederick is a um, he's the head of shipping at uh, Virtus Environmental Finance. Uh, Frederick, your your job is to advise shipping companies on 
on how to comply with the emissions trading system. And so let's pretend that you're at a shipping event and the, the moderator is, give, is giving you, the, uh, is asking you to give just one piece of advice. What would that one piece of advice be to shipping companies that are getting prepared for EU ETS? Thanks, Eric. Um, I think the, uh, the, the, the piece of advice that I would certainly give is uh, to get ready as, as soon as possible because getting ready to trade for a shipping company doesn't mean that you have to trade, but at least you have the opportunity. We were showing uh, earlier on this uh, graph, obviously, uh, uh, where you can really see the volatility and obviously, for example, we saw the price going from 100 to 55 when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. Um, should you have been ready to trade at that time, you could have started, you know, piling up your, your EUAs at a very competitive price. So that's, I think, something to, to keep in mind, getting ready as soon as possible. So, so next, I wanted to turn to Andrea Olivi. He's the, the head of wet freight at Trafigura. And, um, uh, you know, one of the things that ship owners were happy with in, in in the emissions trading system was that it, it, set up, it was set up with a polluter pays principle where the uh, commercial operators are basically footing, footing the bill. And, and, and I want to ask you kind of, what does that mean for a company like yours? How, how are you preparing for the ramifications of that? And how does it change the way you, you know, how does it affect the way you charter ships? Um, well, I would start by saying that uh, we really like EU uh, ETS. We like it because we finally do what we should have done since a few years, which is put a price on carbon. By putting a price on carbon, we are then finally able to take the right commercial decisions while factoring in environmental um, uh, aspects. Yeah? Um, what we're doing at the moment is we're obviously focusing on fixing uh, modern vessels uh, we are fixing vessels with a lower consumption. We are investing uh, to in retrofitting energy-saving devices on our vessels. Sometimes we collaborate and partner with the uh, owners uh, whose vessels we have on long-term TC, and uh, and we split, let's say, the bill and share the uh, upside on the on the consumption savings uh, that we achieve. Um, and this is what we need, and we need to do it more and more. And and I think. This is the great, uh, the great thing about the EU ETS. It finally puts a price on carbon, and it allows us to take these uh, decisions uh, together, with the, together with the ship owners. And next, I wanted to turn to uh, Ingebrit Dom. He's the, the chief executive of Clavinus Combination Carriers. Uh, and and, and uh, Ingebrit, you're the, you're the ship owner on our panel. And, and, but your company is a bit different, right? So, so um, because you're, you have combination carriers, um, so, to put it very simplistically, they can carry different types of cargo so they can minimize kind of journeys, you know, voyages where those, those vessels are, are empty. But to tell us about sort of the, the ramifications of ETS for you as a ship owner and, and how, how are you looking to, how, how do you plan to navigate uh, the, the in, in world with ETS? First start agreeing with Andrea that it's so important we finally get the price on carbon. So we as a ship owner and the whole community gets the incentives to do, do something changing the, the way the business is run. Uh, we have, as you said, this natural advantage as we have that our ships are ballasting far less than standard ships, meaning that we have a far lower carbon 
emission per tonne transported than our competitors. But what we do, we are, uh, our main preparation for EU ETS is to make our business even more efficient, meaning that we have a big energy efficiency program. We are investing probably close to $60 million in our existing uh, and new builds uh, for energy efficiency pro, uh, uh, business. And also we see that there are ways to improve the operational efficiency, getting the crew to use the equipment to put on board, better follow-up, better training, and, and also get putting in a shadow carbon price into our daily chartering operations for regions that doesn't have. Yeah. So I think you know, we do a lot throughout uh, auto business to ensure that we are as efficient as possible, and then hence less exposure to EU ETS uh, rules, and, and hopefully also getting a benefit. Now, I want to grab, I want to go back to the, the, this slide really quick. Uh, and, and as I introduce Antonello uh, Zanfordino, he's the, the senior carbon analyst at, at Shipbroker BRS. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, you know, how you think shipping should prepare for these pricing dynamics. Like, uh, how, how, do you, how do you navigate the volatility? How do you navigate... I mean, whatever you think is the outlook for what that price is going to be. Sure, sure. Thank you, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, indeed, uh, shipping is now joining the rest of the world, as we, list, as, we as we as I heard yesterday at the conference on the ocean, uh, just here. And uh, you are joining the ETS system in a moment where prices are sky high, but also when volatility is extremely, extremely high. So. Take advantage, my, my first message would be take advantage of this. Be prepared, as Frederick said, but don't, don't just think that it's a one-way direction. Price are, are, of course, increasing, but there are also opportunities for you to catch the lows. So be prepared as soon as possible to trade, but also be sensible and be smart. Look, we are, there are companies like us, like BRS, that follow the market for you. We provide a lot of information and market updates for you. Take advantage of that. The market is volatile, and be, be, pre, be sensible, be prepared. Catch the lows and, uh, and use the system not as a tax and a punishment, but more as a, as a tool, as an advantage for you to be more competitive compared to, uh, to a simple carbon tax that maybe other countries at some point will, will implement on shipping. So uh, next, I wanted to turn to Sophia Furstenberg stock um, she is a partner at Furstenberg Maritime Advisory, and I wanted to turn to you, to, to you last at the start um, because I wanted to broaden the scope a little bit, and um, because EU ETS doesn't exist in a vacuum, uh, there's, there's also the fuel EU maritime legislation. Uh, in July, the IMO has an important decision to make, and there's a lot of other moving parts at the IMO that will continue beyond then. Uh, how... How do we? How do you? How do we put the impact of ETS um, in in the context of those those other pieces of the puzzle? Thank you for that question. I think we, when we spoke before, we touched upon the challenge we currently have with regards to applying a life cycle uh, approach. Um, counting the carbon from cradle to, to grave. And I certainly hope at the IMO in July that we have a well-to-wake policy agreement. 
I know working with the few producers that there are hundreds of ways of fuel pathways with different carbon footprints. And so the ETS has, it, there is a, an absolute necessity that how we account and pay for, for carbon allowances in the ETS is directly aligned with how we account for carbon emissions at the IMO. And so if we don't have that alignment, we are creating further ambiguity and it will be further complex to take long-term strategic decisions as to what to do with your ships. And not only that, but fuel producers who see that maritime might be a very important catalyst for the wider energy transition. Maritime has the, the size of demand that is necessary to de-risk these fuel investments. If that ambiguity is there and they cannot sell their fuel at that carbon content, they will not invest in green ammonia. They will not invest in low carbon methanol because then they can sell grey ammonia. So, so the, what, you know, the IMO, to put it you know, in a very kind of simple terms, is looking at you know, whether to calculate well to wake or tank to wake. And, but, but, but that's very simple terms. There's, there's many more parts of that. What, what might the misalignment that you described look like? So um, the fuel industry is now trying to develop harmonized certification across all industry sectors, not just as shipping. As we all know, ammonia is primarily used as a fertilizer. The agriculture industry is certainly also in need of decarbonisation. And um, the, 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 they are trying to establish a well-to-gate certification. They are trying to understand what is our footprint and how can we sell it to maritime. And if the maritime industry is not able to acknowledge what that well-to-gate actually contains, we're not, we're not, we're simply not going to get alternative fuels to scale fast enough. I'm not sure if that is answering your question. Absolutely. So, so Andrea, I heard you say that you like ETS, but is there anything, you know, uh, I've also, I've also read uh, uh, recently in Tradewinds, uh, uh, your, your criticism of the carbon intensity indicator. And I'm wondering, is there, is there anything that, uh, is there anything that you don't like about ETS or any concerns about, about it? I think the challenge with ETS is it's a regional measure trying to tackle a global issue. Yeah? Uh, but I am hopeful, and if you look at what happened with the sulfur cap, the EU first introduced it and then the IMO followed, I think the same will happen with carbon price. So the EU has introduced EU ETS. I, I hope and I believe that the IMO will, uh, over the next three, four, five years, introduce a global carbon price. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and this would be absolutely great. And obviously, the IMO has, uh, has a lot to do. We're all very hopeful that uh, at the next meeting, uh, they will introduce the global fuel standards. We hope that we will move uh, to a full life cycle emission calculating factor. We hope 
we become more ambitious and achieve net zero by 2050. I think that's what we really need to focus on. Uh, so yes, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's a great opportunity for the industry to, uh, to, to do the right thing. Ingrid, I saw you uh, agree with that, <laughs> that comment on the, com on the carbon price. Is there, um, is there a specific carbon price, or would, would any carbon price do? Is there, or is there, is, does it, is there a certain level relative to ETS that it would need to be? Of course, today, if you, if you, today, I think the, the latest uh, EUA price is 77 euros. And if you, even at the top of the implementation in 2026, it corresponds to $120 per ton of fuel. Hmm? And of course, that's far below what's necessary to decarbonize this industry. You should have at least have uh, a carbon price being three, four times higher in order to get the things happening. But of course, the expectation something is coming could drive change. So, uh, but of course, as Andrea was saying, we need this on a global basis as well. Uh, and that's the real important thing. But hopefully, EU ETS can drive IMO to do the right things. And that's our hope and uh, what we pray for every day. So, uh, Antonello, uh, we heard we're, we're at, what would it be, say, 70, above 70 80, now? 70 80. now, okay. So, what, at that price and at the price that, you know, the ETS price might be, um, you know, say in 2025, how do you expect it to uh, influence the way, you know, the way ships trade? What's the, what are the, what are the, what's the impact going to be on, on, on shipping? Well, it's definitely a significant additional burden and additional cost, the one of the CTS. Even right now at 80 euro, although not enough to fully decarbonize or to promote uh, zero emission technology, you can already think that with current prices, uh, for a vessel that sails in between two European ports, the CO2 cost will add an, ex an extra 20% of the, above the fuel cost in 2024, up to probably 40% in 2026 when the ETS will be fully on, uh, on ships. So it's a significant cost already now. Of course, from here to 2025 or 2026, the ETS price is probably going to be even higher. And uh, we might see some shifts in the way how ships trade uh, in between European uh, ports and the ships used somewhere else. We have seen earlier on at the presentation of RAW that there is the West and the rest of the world. I can imagine something similar with maybe some more efficient ships being close to Europe and staying in between European waters because the most efficient ships will take more advantage of the fact that they have to pay a CO2 pro uh, cost on top of the of the fuel, while the least efficient one being kicked out of Europe. On top of that, I would say there is also a significant um, distinction that has to be, uh, that has to be made uh, in terms of how ships on, uh, on the subsectors of the shipping industry, let's say. And here I would like to point out that uh, the important point is how predictable and how easy it is for you to predict which ports are you calling and which, voyage are you, which voyages are you doing during the year to be able to uh, forecast at best what will be your CO2 cost for, for your voyages and be able to, to pass this cost either to the final customers or to include this cost into the freight. 
for example, I like examples, so let's take a very basic one. It's way easier to predict a ferry going every week and during the same schedule every week, so you know where it starts, you know where it ends. It's very easy to predict those kind of emissions. It will be much harder to predict emissions from ships in, uh, that are uh, trading on the, on the market on tram trade, so just shipping going around, chasing opportunities, looking for cargoes and uh, moving around the globe, not because of of the of a fixed schedule, but just because of the market, uh, market realities. So I would say that would be also a very important point to, to keep in mind. I'd like to remind the audience here that, that I'm, I'm checking for questions that you might have in the, um, uh, in the app here. And also, uh, I, there's a, the, my colleague in the room, if you've got questions that you'd ask, like to ask in person, uh, can uh, help you out with a microphone. Because um, I'm not seeing any questions here yet, so I'm not 100% sure it's working. So uh, you might have to ask in person. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to jump to, to Frederick with, with a question. So one of the so one of the uncertainties, as it's been described to me, with the emissions trading system is that the way that shipping's introduction into it has been implemented, um, you know, leaves that leave certain parts of that implementation up to the various member states of the EU. Um, does does that does that is there reason for worry about that? And, and what are the ramifications of it? I think there are no big worries, I would say, because pretty much we have the global frame. It's there. Mm. So uh, it's a matter of, uh, I think what is more important for an owner is to understand, because it's a financial market, EU is a regulated financial product, so it's to understand how the market is, is moving, what is driving this market, um, and, and obviously, uh, uh, I think uh, once, you know, again, starting from really the basics, identifying who is uh, going to be responsible, i.e. the owner or the dock uh, entity holder, um, you know, obviously identify what is the relevant register for, for the entity, and then starting to, to, to trade and to uh, planify things, establish your compliance strategy, as we say, and again, on the strategy side, I would say there are obviously at least three levels that are not alternative, or, but rather cumulative. It's on the volume, based on your MRV from the previous year, based on the pricing, it's a volatile market, so you try to optimize your entry point based on trading tools. And uh, last but not least, I think it's uh, the timing at which you're gonna buy the, the EUAs, which is gonna be triggered by the strategy of the cost path through to the charters. Again, we are already now starting to trade with crews. Why? Because they are already selling their tickets for 24 crews, uh, crews uh, in, in the world. And obviously, if they want to pass the cost to their, on their ticketing system, they need to include the price. And then you have two solutions. Either you don't move, but from day two you're generating a financial exposure, or you move and you buy at the same time that you pass the cost onto the charters or to the uh, passengers. Same for the ferries. So I think it's, a, it's really very, I'm not saying simple, but it's not too complicated to establish a proper compliance strategy. Again, mapping everything, holistic view, where the market is going is obviously a bit different uh, topic, and, uh, and, uh, and clearly uh, the uh, EU is putting 68.4 million EUS, additional EUS on the market to cover the arrival of the shipping. 
whereby the first year is 40% or 90 million, so the give and take 36 million, so you could say, oh, the market is long. But I mean, you can't look at the ETS market without, without having this holistic view, taking into consideration the industry, the aviation. We at Vertis, we are trading uh, EUS for the last 20 years with industry and aviation, and, and clearly, uh, we see that we can't really just look at shipping when it comes to ETS. You have really have to have the holistic view what the industry is doing, what the, um, the uh, aviation is doing. One of the, one of the things about, about, um, about shipping's introduction to ETS is that, you know, obviously a lot of the, a lot of the industries in, that are already in ETS, you know, sort of are, are driving the, the, the pricing dynamics. And I wonder, so how does, um, how does a, how does a, how do shipping companies kind of ride that how do they how do they navigate that and you know is it is it through uh, you know buying carbon allowances as you go is it futures market is it some other form of hedging uh, incidentally any, any any thoughts on, on, on what uh, you think might happen everything is uh, possible you have three markets you have the spot you have the uh, the, the, the the futures you have the uh, the, the options uh, everything is workable and uh, is there is not a single solution I mean every and each ship owner is different depending on your operation, if you're on the spot, if you do voyage, or if you are more on the time charter, the trading system and the, 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 the system that you, you will use to buy and the timing to buy your EOS will be obviously uh, uh, completely different. And, uh, and that's, I think, the, there is, uh, that's where we have to be uh, pragmatic and really always tailor-made solution for your, uh, for your uh, customers. Yeah, sure. I uh, agree with Frederick, but again, my uh, key point here will be, again, predictability. How predictable your market is and how predictable are the voyages you are going to make to first take the buying decision, and then second, take advantage of the volatile markets. Uh, since the beginning of the year, the allowances prices have moved by 25 euros. So between, seven, let's say, 75-ish to 100, more than 100 euros this year. It's a, it's a huge difference between uh, you buy now at seven, almost 80, 70, 75, rather than buying them at 100. So it's a volatile market. The messages follow it, we follow it closely. Uh, you can, of course, buy them spot, derivatives, and auctions. Uh, although auction is not, I would say, a recommended option for at least for, for medium-sized ship owners, I don't see, I don't really see the advantage of uh, going tr to, the, to the complex burden and, uh, and requirements just to, to, get, to get access to auctions while you can be on the spot market and get almost the same price. So it wouldn't be for me uh, an option. I would explore it that much. Andrea, can I, can I put that one to you? What, what, how, as a, as a trader uh, and, and uh, on, on your freight desk, what, how, uh, how, what's the mechanics of how you're going to kind of navigate the, the carbon markets? So I think we're, we're lucky because we have a carbon desk uh, since several years. We have been trading EU ETS for quite some time in relation to our NISTAR facilities. So we have specialized, uh, we, have, we have people that know the market and that are advising us. And tomorrow we'll advise, I'm sure, third party ship owners as well uh, on, on what to do and, and how to do things. Um, I've been speaking to uh, a lot of ship owners over the last couple of months about EU ETS, and I must say the majority of them are more worried about um, uh, you know, complying 
than, let's say, speculate or find the right entry point. Uh, and they all do believe that they will be able to eventually pass this cost to charters, which I think will happen. So from that point of view, I think the big issue right now uh, around EU ETS is the admin burden. And uh, it's, it takes a long time to set up an account. Uh, owners should start today. Uh, you don't want to be an owner uh, on the 15th of December uh, saying, oh, uh, we need to register. <laughs> it's, there's going to be a problem if you wait until then. So I think that's, uh, that's probably the most important thing, um, I would say. Um, oh, sorry. No, no, and, and, and I think, uh, you know, we will, we as, as a shipping book, we will gear ourselves up uh, to offer uh, EU ETS inclusive freight to charters if, uh, if this is something that, that they want. So we, we will offer whatever service our customer uh, needs. Ingrid, how, from, how, does, how do you intend to kind of navigate that with uh, you and your customers? And, and do you, as a ship owner, are you concerned about that administrative burden that Andrea mentioned? I think we can handle the administrative burden. We have the scale to do that. Uh, I think, you know, it, it is, you know, in principle, it's so much more easy. You can pass on the cost to the charters, like Andrea, if that happens. Uh, and, uh, but of course, the devil is in the detail, because, you know, it's, if you have an points and tanker business, you don't know actually where the ship is heading. They could be rerouted, yeah. they could have a longer waiting time. So a lot of, I mean, to calculate actually and put into freight what actually the, the, the EUA exposure will be, it's a bit more complicated. Yeah. And then also have the time difference, the fact that you are reporting in March, the subsequent year, and then you are actually rele releasing your, the, the EUAs in September. So it's, it, it is a, some complex, complexity in total. So what we do, of course, we ensure that our contracts are taken care of, that we can pass on to our charters. Secondly, we, are, we have also put up, or in the process of putting up uh, a trading desk for UAs, and not in KCC, but in Klavnes as a totality in order to optimize things and, uh, and possibly take some benefits. But I think, the, uh, so it's more complex than the first thinking it would be. And I think ship owners should really look into it um, yeah. and take care and have some strategy and, on it. And if, if I may add also, okay, they are set up, they are a big company, they know what they're doing, but you have a lot of smaller entities, maybe, you know, a small company owning one or two ships. It's going to be very difficult for, for those companies. And I think, uh, we will see probably pools uh, gain an advantage here because they will be able to aggregate, uh, let's say, vessels and offer these services to uh, smaller third-party owners. So that's something that we may start seeing happening in, in the next couple of months. Sophia, one of, one of the details on, on my first slide up there is the, the 5,000 GT, and it's something that the, you mentioned to me when we spoke earlier, some of the ramifications, and, and I guess, I wonder, do you worry that a ship that's, you know, 4,909 GT is gonna, is gonna have an advantage over one that's just a little bit bigger? What are the, what are the ramifications of that, of that size limit? Yeah, so um, we have lately been working with it, with some chemical tankers in Europe, and surprisingly, there is quite, 5,000 is a very important kind of marker here. There, there is a significant amount of vessels that are just under that size. 
and more specifically even that and if we are in the tanker market specifically we have the double hull regulation and actually one important consequence right now is that so you have the actual deadweight tonnage and then you have the reduced uh, gross tonnage sorry and then you have the reduced gross tonnage and if that is just above the 5,000 you're actually going to be penalized so it's like this incredible situation in that specific kind of um, branch and, and fleets that have a, a portion kind of below 5,000 and some above it's it's creating a rather interesting um, situation um, in, in, in that particular case um, but um, I was um, no, sorry. Back to your question. Okay, what were you? <laughs> no, I have another one for you, actually, yeah. which is, you know, the so and, and and I'd like to is you know if you look at the price in ETFs, yeah. uh, right? So there's been a lot of discussion over the course of these few days at North Shipping about the uh, about a carbon price that that encourages uh, that encourages green fuels, or that, that cuts the price gap between green fuels and uh, conventional fuels. Yeah. So with, with the EU ETS price, is, or, or, you know, is, this, is this ever, is there gonna be any promotion of green fuels at the price levels of EU ETS, or is this just an efficiency game? When you first asked that question to me, I was like, no, I don't think so. And then I came back to you and I said, yes, I think so. And uh, the, the reason for that are several. And one of them is that I have so far not got any kind of calculation, like case, to compare it with. And recently, Watson Farley Williams and DMV, they showed me, showed me, no, they talked about a case where they looked at 12 um, vessels, 100% operation in the EU, 100% implementation. The example they call heavy cargo, heavy carriers or something like that. And at 80, dollars per carbon allowance, they came up with an annual cost of 5 million euro. And so suddenly we have, with this, even though I appreciate the great volatility and uncertainty in that case, but suddenly we have an actual cost, a very big cost, that we can go to our customers, our charters with, and say, do you think we should work together to, to, to see how we can build um, better vessels going forward. How can we, I mean, this is a cost that I expect to transfer over to you. Are you interested in working with us to, to get a new building scheme that is more progressive, aggressive and whatever, and starting taking those kinds of chances? So, I mean, I really, I mean, it, it requires, however, that, that you are both interested to, to not only, you know, save cost here. Why are we all doing this? Why is the ETS here? Well, at the end of the day, it's actually trying to combat climate change. And I'm sorry to burst the bubble, but energy efficiency, which we all agree is absolutely necessary right now to, to kind of get down, but energy efficiency is not going to reach zero. The ETS is not going to help us reach zero, but that cost, if we work strategically and collaboratively with our customers, we can, if we both believe that we want to combat climate change, there should be the right incentive to, to, to reach those collaborations through the ETS. 
Andrea, I know Trafigura has looked a lot at uh, green fuels. Do, do you ever see ETS, uh, the, the price level of ETS, um, doing more than encouraging more vessel, vessel efficiency? Uh, absolutely, and I think uh, the, the, the longer we go, the, the, more, the more it will help, and then after that you'll also have the fuel EU maritime, which will uh, help cost neutralize the difference between VLSFO and, and other green fuels. So I think it's, it's, it's help. It's not going to solve the issue, but it's, it's a good start, let's say. Uh, and uh, when you factor in EU ETS, fuel EU maritime, IRA, which is making uh, blue ammonia more and more competitive, well, then suddenly, maybe in 2027, 2028, all the stars will align and, and finally we will solve the big issue because the owners will have the confidence to go and order green ships. Uh, fuel producer will have the confidence to, uh, to say, okay, I will invest in this green ammonia or green methanol project because I know I can sell the fuel to, to the owners and, and suddenly we can finally decarbonize uh, this, this industry. So I do think uh, it will work. Ingebrecht, what do you think? I think, you know, I agree, it helps, but what we need is uh, some sort of predictability outlook for the global regulations, and that's what we are missing today. They are basically close to nothing. Yeah. And what's already implemented, like the CI, is, to put it frankly, quite stupid. So, no, IMO has to get uh, regulation. No, starting up at the, at the meeting in uh, July, where we firstly established that there will be a global carbon tax and have a, a, some sort of... Uh, uh, time frame for how, when the details will be settled and so we have some predictability so we can both we as ship owners, fuel producers can start investing for reaching the targets of decarbonizing the business. You mentioned CII, quite stupid. If yeah. I can be a bit less diplomatic I'd say it's just stupid without the quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Frederick, I want to go to you with a question. We heard earlier how this uh, how the the burden that ETS will put on the smaller ship owners. Uh, and this is a very fragmented industry. There's lots of small ship owners. There's, what's, um, how, how do you think that's going to play out? And, and what, what are they going to, what are the smaller ship owners going to be doing differently? I think they're going to obviously uh, face proportionally a, a bigger burden than the larger companies. I think then the, really what they have to concentrate is to uh, fine tune really the, the passing over the cost to the, to the charters and, uh, and, uh, and uh, to avoid generating any uh, financial exposure. Um, the, um, that being said, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, for small owners, they will have nevertheless to be ready because we were mentioning obviously passing the cost to the charters, but uh, if you have a vessel that is on time charter due to be delivered APS and that the vessel is sailing from Europe, that leg will be, uh, will be basically under the EU ETS scope, but the charters will not pay for that. Same, you know, we all went through the BIMCO ETS clause. If the vessel is on fire during that time, the, 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 the ETS exposure is for the, the ship owner. So clearly, the small ones will have to get really, uh, you know, fine-tuned and well-organized to make sure that there are no corner stone that are, uh, you know, not covered and, uh, and to make sure that uh, the, the name of the game for them is going to be, you know, being uh, financially neutral. That's it. Well, our time has elapsed and I know, and so 
I want to thank everyone on this panel for, for an excellent discussion, and thanks, thanks to the audience for, for tuning in. Um, and, uh, and now it's time for some coffee, so uh, I, I know I need some. <laughs> thanks, everyone. <laughs> more on the environment and the business of the ocean. Danish energy company Orsted, a leader in producing wind energy at sea, is trimming its ambitions in the space. Recharge reported that the company now plans to have 28 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030, down from a previous target of 30 gigawatts. Why? Orsted is taking a harder look at projects to stay profitable. Read about it at rechargenews.com. Gary Dixon reported in Tradewinds that Norwegian shipowner Wilson has ordered at least six and up to 14 bulk carriers with an array of energy efficiency features. Designs of the small ships show a pair of Econowind sails on each vessel, and they'll have other features including an optimized hull design, and the design allows Wilson to adapt the vessels to various alternative fuels as they become more viable. Gary also reported that two major ship owners, Mitsui OSK Lines and Hafnia, are among investors in a new clean fuel production project in the U.S. The companies have invested in Ascension Clean Energy, which will produce hydrogen and green ammonia in Louisiana. Read this story and more at tradewindsnews.com. Music for this episode is by Music Unlimited from Pixabay.